It's been eight weeks since I've preached a sermon. It's been a while since I've had an eight-week break, but it uh, feels good to be back and to be up here and hopefully to do a faithful job presenting God's Word to you. We are going to continue the important task that we have as Christians of studying God's Word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, by digging in and studying what it is that God has said. There are lots of churches and so-called churches and lots of places out there that have given up on verse-by-verse study of God's Word. And we can't do that. We won't do that. It's an important task. It's a stewardship responsibility that we have to study the Word of God. And in times like these, it's so incredibly needed to see what God has said and be changed by it that we might go out into the world and truly be lights for Christ. And we're going to start a new study this morning, the study of the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you're someone who's looking for a time to make a commitment to go to church regularly, this is a great Sunday to do that, because we're starting a new series. You're here for the first one. Don't you want to be here for the rest? I hope you do. I want you to be here for the rest. We're not going to start in 1 Corinthians, though. We're going to start in Acts 18, because to understand how 1 Corinthians exists as a book, we have to understand Acts 18 and what happened in Corinth to get them to that point. So let's turn there together, Acts 18. And if you have your bulletin, it has notes on the inside. You can follow along and see when I'm about to conclude. That'll be helpful for you. So grab those two, and we'll start in Acts 18. But let's open with the word of prayer. Again, Father, we come to you thanking you because of all the good things that you've given us and all the marvelous works that you've performed in your world. We thank you for the marvelous work of salvation, that through Christ we have the gift of eternal life, that by the gospel we have your Holy Spirit, the author of Scripture. He lives in us and He teaches us and He illumines Your Word to us. Cause that to happen here this morning for us to see things and be changed by what we see and understand. Lord, though I am a sinner both by nature and by choice, I am unworthy on all of my own merits. Lord, I ask that You would still use me to present Your Word to Your people that it would be so clear And that we would all be more like our Savior because of the time we spend in your word today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 18. Acts 18. Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. He is planting churches throughout different regions. And he's been in Greece. We're going to get here on our Wednesday night study before too long. Wednesday night we've been going through the book of Acts, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're picking that up again this week, and we'll be in chapter 16 here soon. But in chapter 18, we read in verse 1, After these things, he, Paul, left Athens. There's a city you've heard of, a city in Greece. He left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. 
He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. An amazing things happening there in Corinth. Paul, of course, a former Jew himself, sought out his fellow countrymen, Jewish people. And he sought them out in that city of Corinth with very little earthly success. Up to this point, those first six verses of Acts 18, you read that and you say, well, not much is happening there. Time to move on to the next city, right? Paul got to the point where he just shook off the dust and said, I'm done with you. But God wasn't done with him in that city. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, Paul left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And look at this, verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So Paul left the synagogue. He was reasoning there. He was devoted fully to the Word of God to reason with the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. He left that place and went next door. Your translation might say Titus or just justice, but that's the name of the man who owned the house. He let Paul come in, and Paul set up shop in a house next to the synagogue. And God used that approach outside of the synagogue. Crispus, the very leader of the synagogue, believed. He was converted. He was no longer a Jew who rejected Jesus, but now he was a brother in the Lord. His whole household believed, and many other Corinthians Now that's a cool story. It's summed up really quickly in just two verses. There's a lot going on there, and it's an amazing thing. Yet what we see in the book of Acts and what we see in church history repeatedly over and over, what follows gospel success? Persecution. So let's look at verse 9. The Lord spoke to Paul, saying, In the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Apparently, Paul had gotten more reserved at Titus' house. Apparently, Perhaps due to all the hubbub, all these Corinthians being converted, including the leader of the synagogue, there were threats of persecution, and Paul became more reserved. He became more silent. That's not like the Paul that we know, is it? But apparently he did, because God confronts him in this vision and says, don't be silent anymore. And what's the reasoning? God says, I have many people in this city. There are more conversions to come. So, verse 11, it says, Paul settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But, verse 12, while 
Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. Now, this isn't a Jewish structure. This is the Roman structure. So we're now outside of the religious system of the synagogue, and Gallio and Achaia were talking about the Roman government that controlled the region. Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. And the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, the secular government. And they said, this man, Paul, persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. That was the Jews' complaint. Well, interesting. What do Roman governments, secular governments, care about Jewish law? They don't care. So after 18 months of influence, a year and a half of serving the Corinthians, Paul was brought before this government. And look at what happens next. Verse 14. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Sosthenes had taken Crispus's spot. Crispus was the leader of the synagogue who believed and got baptized that we just read about earlier in the chapter. And Sosthenes took his place. He was the one who led the charge a year and a half into Paul's time at Corinth. He led the charge to bring Paul before the Roman government. And there's Gallio saying, I don't care. <laughs> I'm not a Jew. I don't care. That's your deal. Take care of it. And so it doesn't say if it was the Jews or the Romans, but some group of people beat Sosthenes. It might have been the Romans saying, you wasted our time. Now we're just going to beat you to a living pulp. Or it may have been his fellow Jews saying, you blew it. Now we still have to deal with Paul. Either way, Sosthenes got beat up. What a terrible position for him to be in. And so, as we read through Acts 18, 1 through 17, as we just did, or verse 18, Paul remaining there many days longer, we see how to plant a church. So who's ready now to answer the call to be a missionary? I see that hand in the back somewhere, yeah. Uh, that's how God established local churches through His servants. What an amazing ordeal. So let's recap, because there's something that you're going to see right off the bat in 1 Corinthians that you need to see. So let's recap. Crispus, he was the leader of the synagogue, and he was the first major convert in Corinth. And I only say major, not because his, his life was of more value than others, but because his influence was of much greater uh, value than others. He really could influence a lot of people. That's why after he got saved, many others got saved. Crispus, first major convert in Corinth. Others followed Crispus, and Paul even baptized Crispus. We'll learn that in the letter of the, to the, first, or the first letter to the Corinthians. Sosthenes is the name of the guy who replaced Crispus. These are names that we aren't super familiar with. We don't ex really use these when we're naming our babies these days. But Sosthenes took Crispus's place as leader of the synagogue and tried to get Paul out of there and was beaten for it. Sosthenes. He's the one who charged Paul. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, 
verse 1. The very first verse of 1 Corinthians. As is Paul's custom, he's writing this letter not by himself, but he has someone with him either as a secretary or just fellow servant for the ministry. And let's see what it says. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. There are only two times in all of Scripture that Sosthenes' name comes up. The first one is in Acts 18 when he's trying to persecute Paul. The second one is right here in 1 Corinthians 1.1 where he's serving alongside Paul. We just sang about amazing grace. And what do we see here? Two former persecutors of the church of God together writing a letter to the church of God to encourage them in the Lord to further explain gospel truths. Isn't that amazing? I, I just had never made that connection before this study. Perhaps I should have. And I just thought it was the most fascinating, beautiful thing. A picture of grace. We don't know how Sosthenes got from point A to point B. Actually, the Christian, the saved state should be point A. We don't know how he got from point B to point A. Last we knew, he was getting beat up in the courts. And here he is now alongside Paul. What an amazing thing. Let me give you a few facts about this city of Corinth that we're about to study here. Corinth was located on a narrow isthmus. You guys know what an isthmus is? You remember geography class? Uh, An isthmus is a narrow strip of land that connects two larger pieces of land, and it has water on each side. Corinth was located on an isthmus in Greece. Greece has lots of those. If you can picture Greece in your mind's eye on a map, there are lots of little islands and lots of things jutting off of the mainland. They have lots of those, and Corinth was on one of those isthmuses. Say that four times fast. That isthmus was only about four miles wide, so it was a very narrow strip of land. Corinth was about four miles wide. And it was in a very interesting location as far as uh, foot traffic is concerned. A lot of people would be uh, going through the Mediterranean there. They would need to get from one side to the other, and they would find that Corinth was a great place to drag their barges. They would be tradesmen taking goods and and things to different places, and they'd get to this isthmus. Uh, Corinth was a city of 500,000 people, very well-known city at that time. They'd get to that city, and they would drag their barge across the city. And you can imagine if you have lots of people doing that from east to west, west to east, back and forth, you've got lots of trade going on. They're dragging their goods through there, might as well lighten the load and do trade in Corinth. So it was a very cosmopolitan city. It was a key center of commerce. In its diversity, it was a lot like New York. You had people from all over the world who were there. In its landscape, it was a lot like Los Angeles. It had lots of beaches and ocean. And in its sin, it was a lot like Las Vegas. (laughs) Corinth was a place of many people with many different behaviors. To give you an idea, they had a nickname for prostitutes in that day. They were called Corinthian girls. The Corinthians were known for their lewd and sinful and gross behavior. All walks of life and all types of sinners. That's the basis for this church. Isn't it interesting, in a city or a place where you have lots of travelers, you usually find lots of sin. 
you always find lots of trucks at those uh, nasty metal buildings on the side of the interstate that invite people to come in and to do sinful things. Sinners and travel go hand in hand. And Corinth was one of those places. Now, the Corinthians, as the church began and started to grow, the Corinthians were quite divided. They weren't exactly a great unified front in that city. They had many different opinions about things, and they had many different opinions about Paul himself. Some of us might think of the letter of 1 Corinthians, if you're a student of the Bible, if you've read this before, you might think, oh yeah, 1 Corinthians, they're the ones who wrote Paul a letter asking him a bunch of questions about their sins or sin issues so they could get his word back on what they should do. And I don't know if that's entirely the case. We do find out in chapter 7 that they had written him a letter, it's true. Paul had learned things about them through a letter. Uh, That's in chapter 7, verse 1. But it doesn't seem like necessarily the whole church just loved Paul and wanted to know what Paul's opinions were. In fact, there's evidence in this letter that a significant portion of the church didn't think much of Paul. And so Paul has to defend himself quite a bit as he corresponds with the Corinthians. Turn with me to chapter 9 of the book, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We see that Some of the contention, at least, was about finances and financial support of Paul. 1 Corinthians 9, we'll look at the first six verses here. Look at the tone of this apostle as he writes this letter. He says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? You see, the question had come up, should we support Paul full-time in this ministry? And apparently, many of them said, no, we shouldn't give our money to Paul, but instead, he should work as the rest, a day job, and then focus on serving us in addition to that. Hmm, interesting. Look at verse 3 again. He was being examined, and he had to give it a a defense. My defense to those who examine me is this. Paul was being examined and was being put on the defensive. So it seems more likely that Paul had picked up on various practices in this church through their letter, through word of mouth, and now he is intervening. He spends the first six chapters of this book asserting things to them and saying, I've heard of this, I've heard of that, and this is my correction for you. And then from there, starting in chapter 7, he is responding to things that came up in their letter. That's why so many of the chapters start with, now concerning this, now concerning that, because Paul is responding to specific things that were happening in that church. This is why I titled the sermon the way I did. Did you notice the title? Sometimes I get creative with those, and I spend a little bit of time. Holy little rascals. You've heard about the rascal part now, that... 
they're a sinful people, that they're an interesting people, those little rascals, you've gotten some background on that. But now let's get some background on the holy part. How could such a twisted, messed up people be considered holy? Look with me at chapter 1 again, verses 2 and 3. Paul writes, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church of God at Corinth, those who have been sanctified. Sanctify is an interesting word. It means to be consecrated. It means to be rendered holy or declared holy. To be considered sacred. Robert Gramacki in his commentary says, The phrase, to them that are sanctified, is the translation of one Greek word. Grammatically, it means that they had been sanctified or set apart by God from the world for Himself. In a decisive event in the past, and that they were remaining and would continue to remain in a sanctified position or standing. A lot of prepositional phrases were in that definition. I'm going to read it to you again. Grammatically, it means that they had been sanctified or set apart by God from the world for Himself in a decisive event in the past, and that they were remaining and would continue to remain in a sanctified position or standing. He says, such a position was only possible because they were judicially accepted in the beloved Christ. Notice the passive nature of this position. It doesn't say, to those who have sanctified themselves. It doesn't say, to those who have earned the right to be sanctified by God. It doesn't say that, does it? Look at it, verse 2. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. These believers were sanctified, set apart, considered holy by God. And how is that the case? How could that be? How could sinful people, some gross sin, we're going to see in this letter the depth of their depravity, just how bad they were. How could they be sanctified by God? Don't they have to earn it? Don't they have to prove themselves? Don't they have to fill out some sort of a form or be found on some sort of a list? Well, the only list they're found on is the book of life, and they didn't write their own names there. The way that a person is considered sanctified, the way that a person is considered holy, is found in that little prepositional phrase after that word sanctified. Look at it, verse 2, in Christ Jesus. The way that a person is considered set apart for God is because that person has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that person has understood and recognized from God's Word that he or she is a sinner. And that's not okay. Just because we're all sinners, that doesn't mean it's okay. We are all sinners in the sense that We've all been born with this nature that causes us to disobey. And we all deserve the wrath of God. God doesn't say, well, you're all that way, so I'll just look over it. 
God sees humanity in its depravity and says, you are all worthy of death. Not one of his creatures on our own merit deserves to live, deserves eternal life, deserves joy, deserves bliss, deserves peace, or deserves grace. But the very definition of grace is that it's undeserved. The very definition of grace is that it's unearned or unmerited. And what we see at the cross, what we see in the gospel, is that God, in His grace, provided something for us that we could never earn for ourselves, that we could never provide for ourselves, and that God Himself became man, that God walked among us. His name was Jesus. He lived a perfect life, and He died the death that we deserve. He took on the punishment that we deserve. He was punished by the wrath of God under the name of our sin. And He was put to death in the flesh. Yet He was made alive in the Spirit. He rose again, proving that He is, capital L, Lord. And that all who trust in His work alone can be saved. In a decisive moment, a moment in history, you're saved. And according to this verse in 1 Corinthians 1-2, you're also sanctified. Meaning, from that moment forward, God considers you holy. You're set apart. You're separated from that sin that once defined you. And now you are defined by the holiness that He gives you. You're defined by the righteousness of Jesus. You're sanctified. And it begins a life of sanctification learning holiness, learning righteousness, and practicing it because you are already considered holy. In fact, you're considered a saint. Look in verse 2 again. They're sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Saints. Now, they didn't get that title because they were venerated by the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't get that title because, you know, they're There are writers of Scripture like St. Matthew, St. Mark, something like that. They got that title because they are believers in the gospel. And all Christians are saints. You might say of someone, well, oh, she is so, she's lovely. She's a wonderful person. She's a saint. Well, not if she's not a believer in the gospel. (laughs) But if she is, and so are you, then so are you. You're a saint. You are a holy one. That's what that word means. The very title denotes holiness. And how do you get that title? If it's not by a church declaring you to be a saint, how do you get that title? It tells you right there. Look at the verse again. By calling. Saints by calling. And whose call is this? It's the call of God. One of the greatest passages in the New Testament that sums up how salvation comes to sinners is Romans 8, 28-30. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren." And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also 
declared innocent. He justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. How does somebody get called as a saint? By God's purposes. According to his purpose. Called according to his purpose. And as we get to know the Corinthians more and more and see their sin for what it is, we'll see more of why this is God's doing only. These people could have never made themselves saints. They, are, they were so, so sinful. But God called them. And He gave them a title. Saints. Saints. These opening verses express how the title of saint is awarded and how it is kept. When God adopts one of His creatures, one of His sinful creatures, into His family through the Gospel, that person becomes once and forevermore a saint, a holy one. There's an illustration I heard of a pastor who was out golfing. must have been an off day. Uh, or maybe it was one of those outdoor prayer meetings, and uh, he was out golfing with a few of his friends, and he received a phone call while he was out on the golf course that his son ended up in the county jail. And so it must have been a mistake. Uh, his son had never done anything wrong, so he thought. <laughs> and so he grabbed his friends, and they went down to the jail. And sure enough, there he was, and the charges were laid out. He was caught red-handed. And some people were wondering, how could a pastor's son do such a thing? His father's a preacher. How could he ever do something that would land him in the county jail? You listening, boys? <laughs> well, you see that even those who are considered to be of some sort of higher reputation or are given a title like saint or pastor's kid, they still have sin, don't they? Sometimes gross sin. But that didn't change the title of that pastor's son, did it? He all of a sudden didn't become, you know, separated from his father in that way. He will for, forever and always be that man's son. And so it is with the gospel. And as we come to know the Lord and we are given the title of saints, you're still going to have some really gross sin in your life. And it has to be addressed. But you will never, ever have that title of saint removed from your name. You will always be Saint Amy or Saint Mike. Isn't that amazing? Because you are saints by calling, God has chosen to put that title on you and to adopt you into His family through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing. Notice again at this, in this verse, verse 2, so much to see in verse 2. Paul doesn't say to the church of the Corinthians, but he says to the church of God at Corinth. I already mentioned how the Corinthians were so divided. The Corinthians had all kinds of opinions. Factions had formed. They were waging war with one another in the church. 
And right off the bat, Paul makes it clear that this is God's church. And this is a church in a certain place, but it's not a church of a certain place. Right now, we are called Payson Bible Church. We are God's church at Payson. But we are not of Payson. This isn't the church of the Paysonites. That would exclude like two-thirds of our roster anyway, because I think only a third of us live in Payson. We are God's church in a city. And we need to always remember that. Because salvation is a work of God, He's the one who calls and saves the people. That means God is the one who owns the church. It could say God's church instead of saying the church of God. This is a possessive pronoun. God's church. He builds it. He owns it. And in this verse, Paul reminds them that they're not the only church. Did you notice that the first time we read it? He says, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. God's calling extended beyond the boundaries of Corinth. God's church, God's saints, they are found beyond the city of Corinth. He has people all over the world. And what's the marker of these fellow churches? How do you know if someone else or some other church is a part of the big capital C church, the one church of God? Well, it says right here, these saints, all in every place, what do they do? They call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The evidence of their calling is their calling on the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been given a calling by God. They've been rendered as saints. They've been declared sanctified. And it's evidenced by the way that they call on the Lord Jesus. The marker of these fellow saints all over the world is their testimony of Jesus Christ. Think about this. What we proclaim about Jesus is the most important thing about our church. Our calling on the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important thing about Payson Bible Church. It's the evidence that we are part of the worldwide church, the collection of saints all around the world. And we recognize as one local church found here in this town in Utah, we recognize a fundamental unity with other churches all around the world who also call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? When we travel, when we communicate with others online, whatever it may be, we recognize at a fundamental level that we have unity on the most important thing, the, the most important and clear evidence of our being saints, that is, the calling on Jesus. Let's look at this in Romans again, Romans chapter 10. It's the book right before 1 Corinthians, so you can't get lost. Romans 10, verses 8 through 13. Romans chapter 10, starting with verse 8. It says, The word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. 
For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him, Jesus, will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's at the heart of our gospel, calling on Jesus. If you came to me, if you came to any of the believers in this church and you asked, how can I get to heaven? What we are going to say is not, well, you need to do this and this and this and this. Oh, and then do this and then keep doing it for the rest of your life, and then you'll go to heaven. That is not what we will say in this church. As simple as we can make it, if you asked us, how can I go to heaven? The answer is this. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Call on Jesus as Lord and believe that He is the one who took care of your sin, that He is the one who rose from the dead, and that He is the one who can give you an everlasting righteousness by faith and not by merit. You don't go to Him and, and have Him say, okay, I've evaluated your life and you've qualified. That's not how it works with Jesus. You call on His name from a place of desperation. You call on His name from a, a recognition that you have nothing to bring. In fact, you have a debt that you owe. And it's an eternal debt. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, He took care of that debt. Jesus paid it all. We sang it. Nothing but the blood. He was nailed to a cross to pay our debt. And he lived that life before his death of perfect righteousness that we might receive it on our account by faith. A life of perfection gets credited to you by faith. An amazing thought to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And then you might ask, okay, well, I believe. Now what? If you've got nothing else to list off and if you're not going to say do keep it all up for the rest of your life, then now what? Well, now you're a part of the church, the saints, all of those who in every place call on the name of the Lord. You have been placed into a body. You've been added to this living organism, this growing organism that God continues to build. You're a member of the body. You've been equipped to serve and to love as Jesus did. I'll read to you Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. Paul wrote to that church saying, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, there it is, that word again, calling, with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Count all the ones here. There is one body, the body of Christ, the church. There's one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
all believers everywhere who are considered or reckoned as saints, holy ones in the eyes of God, share in this unity of the oneness of the gospel. This unity of the one Lord Jesus Christ. That by faith, we share in the gospel of grace. And this is a great time in history to remember that phrase. Look at that phrase again in verse 2, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. That phrase, all who in every place call on the name of our Lord. It's a great, great time to remember that phrase. Because if you haven't picked up on it, the church is so divided right now. The church, particularly the American church, is so divided. The church in Corinth was divided. And we are divided. Let me ask you this. During divisive times in the church, what will you fall back on as the most important thing? What will it be? During the most divisive times in the church, what are you going to fall back on? Is it going to be politics? Is it going to be race? Is it going to be what to do with a mask? During the most divisive times, if you are not falling back on the supreme truth that Jesus is Lord and by calling on Him we can be saved, You're missing it. You're missing it. That's the basis of our unity. That's what joins us all together. All who in every place call on the name of the Lord. That's what unites us. It's the ultimate reality that Jesus is Lord. We must hold in highest esteem the gospel of Jesus and the people of Jesus. If anything starts taking that place, it's, this is a crazy year. You know that. In almost every way, our society is tearing at the seams. But what are we holding in the highest esteem? It has to be the gospel of Jesus and the people of Jesus. The fundamental unity in the gospel. And that's what Paul is addressing here with the Corinthians. They were so divided. And right from the get-go, he's putting their minds, their focus on the calling of God and Jesus that has made them saints. He's putting their minds on the unity of believers by their calling on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our hearts have to be. That's where our minds have to be continually as Christians. Because we might have unceasing 2020s this year. This might be the new normal. As much as you hate to hear it, Mayberry might be dead. But what is most important will remain most important. God's calling on our lives and our continual calling on Jesus as Lord. And through that, what do we have? Verse 3, grace to you and peace. This is the message to the people of Christ, to the church of God. It's a standard salutation of Paul's, but we do well to dwell on it each time. Grace to you. Through the work of Jesus, through the merits of Jesus, you have grace through the gospel. 
And through that grace, what's the result? Peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. And continued experiences of grace. Once you know the grace of the gospel, you have peace and continued experiences of grace, don't you? As God takes care of you and is so kind to you. These are gifts from both the Father and the Son who have brought salvation to your heart by faith. I think of Ephesians 4.18. It says, For through Him, Jesus, we both, Jews and Greeks, have our access in one Spirit to the Father. For through Jesus, we have our access in one Spirit to the Father. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, through the gospel of Jesus, and by the faith wrought in our hearts by the Spirit, we have access to the Father. Father, we do thank you for this gospel. We thank you for the ultimate reality that Jesus is Lord. You have placed your calling on many people in this room. You've given them the title of saint. Cause us to hold that in highest regard. To recognize that you, as our Father, have adopted us and that will never change because it was done by you and you alone. Father, give us a renewed perspective and understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. Cause us to live for you this week as we represent you in this chaotic and uncertain world that we would bring to bear on the culture a peace that surpasses understanding through the gospel. A certain peace. As our neighbors around us are scrambling in uncertainty, cause us to bring the certain message of hope from the gospel in such a way that changes lives. Let us be faithful. Let us run the race set before us and to honor you supremely in all that we say and do and think. We pray it in the name of King Jesus. Amen.